as Paul mentioned earlier, I'm going to bring these two things together. As Paul mentioned earlier, this is a time um, in America when we vote, one of the times that we do that. And one of the things that strikes me is that pretty much every year, even in the major elections, um, by far the winning candidate is did not vote. Um, it's not even close. And, and something like 25 million born-again Christians did not vote in the last election. Um, if, if, if we actually took the time to go and do these things, to go and vote, and we'd have a huge impact on our community that is still open to us. Um, so I'd love to encourage you in that. But here's one of the things, you know, the church's main job isn't about fixing our nation. It's about serving in the kingdom. And uh, what strikes me as fascinating is that when we serve in the kingdom, it's amazing how often the consequences of that um, actually are to do things like heal our nation. And that, that comes alongside with it. And um, uh, years ago, I've never checked these numbers. Um, I don't know if this can be right, but I was told um, that if the Christian community of the church would step up and foster and adopt kids, and we emptied out the foster and adoption system into our homes, um, that those children, as they followed their parents, would then control every vote moving forward for generations. And so it's one of those funny things where, where when we do what God has called us to do, that perhaps that then um, would accomplish some of the other things, side things that we would like to accomplish as well. So, um, so I'd love to encourage you. Uh, I'm on the chair the, right now for another few months. I'm the chairman of the board for the Fostering Collective, and that is why it exists. Um, if you if you say I don't, I'd love to be involved somehow, but I don't know how. Look up the Fostering Collective, get in touch, and we'll help you find. There's always places in the wall that where we need people to stand in the gap. <clears throat> okay, jumping into today's conversation in First Samuel, it feels to me like we actually need to start um, by kind of setting the right tone, the tone for our conversation today. And I think the right tone can be found in James chapter 4. So let's start there. In James chapter 4, I'm going to start in verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. I think, I think James sets our heart right when it comes to what we're about to read over these next couple of chapters here. Pick up, if you will, with me back over in 1 Samuel in chapter 4, starting in verse 12. Now we already know, because you've, you've been here the last few weeks, you've already read the section, the author of Samuel has already let us know what's happening. So we, we know what's happened. We know that the people of Israel went to war against the Philistines. And the Philistines have, have completely shellacked them. It, it has been an absolute rout. Um, and the people of Israel are routed at first, so the, the worthless sons of Eli got the, um, the Ark of the Covenant from the, to the tabernacle and goes take it to the battlefield. The men of Philistia have this, this kind of a pep talk, are we not men? Um, are we not strong enough? Um, if we will act like men and fight like men, the men that we are, the men of Philistia, we will defeat um, Israel and their God, and in fact, they do. And by the end of the battle, 34,000 Israelis are dead. The sons of, of Eli are dead. And the Ark of the Covenant has been stolen. It's a shocking turn of events. We know that. But this old, fat, heartbroken, blind man has no idea. So we're about to step into him 
finding out what's going on. Verse 12, a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh on the same day with his clothes torn and his dirt on his head. This is the first of several such messengers in First and Second Samuel. People are just going to randomly show up and they're going to deliver a message of God's judgment. They are not prophets, but they, it is as if they are. And they're usually total strangers. We know very little about them. In this case, we know that this one is a man of Benjamin, which is fascinating. Benjamin is a very tiny tribe at this time. They were nearly wiped out in the book of Judges. I'm down to just a few hundred people. So it's odd that it's a man of Benjamin who gets there. Some people think this is Saul. Um, we have this total supposition. We'll get there, but we have no way of knowing that, that this is King Saul. Um, but anyway, <clears throat> let's keep our eye out for them. This is also already the third time that a total stranger has shown up to deliver a message like this. So we're going to see that. This one has run about 20 miles um, during the day in order to deliver the, the news of the slaughter. There's disagreement among commentators as to whether or not his condition, his torn clothes, and the dirt on his head as a result of the battle or as a result of the grief that he has from the defeat. Verse 13, when he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, which is a strange thing for a blind man to do, but it's what he's doing, on by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. <clears throat> when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. And when Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli, now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? Remember, he's no, there's no cell phones. He can't check online to see what the condition is. No one can text ahead or warn him. There's not even a radio. No one can let him know. This is the first person. This is the fastest the news could arrive. How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. And your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. This would probably be arguably the worst news anyone has ever been delivered in the history of mankind. It's got to be up there. There's got to be a good competition that this offers. This is the fulfillment of all God had warned Eli about, but more. The top anxiety, his, note, his top anxiety, you'll notice, was for the ark. Yes, it is unbelievably horrific to learn that your people have been defeated. Some of us are old enough to remember some of the activities that happened throughout American history that indicated we lost. We've been defeated. We're in trouble. Rare for us, but it's happened. And many of us, many of you, have, have experienced the news your child has died whether through miscarriage or, or some other thing, but especially later in life, of the hardship of as an, an older person finding out that you've outlived your children. What a tough time. It's supposed to be some of the worst news you could possibly receive. I would think so. But Eli's top fear is for the ark. I think there's a few reasons for this. One, it may be that Eli is at least aware enough to know that fundamentally the hope of his people is not in Eli's family. And the hope of the people is not in the might of the people, but the hope of the people is in the blessings of God. And the thought that that could be taken from them truly terrifies him. Maybe there's more to it. I don't know. I read this and yet again I ask the question, where is Samuel? And I got to tell you, I got nothing. I have no idea where Samuel is in this whole account. Is he off visiting relatives somewhere? He's back home in Ramah. I, 
I don't know what's going on here, but we get nothing from him. And you would think he would be a key player in this story, and yet, silence. I think there's part of that is the, also the literary value of the fact that, remember, remember how a few chapters ago, the bad news kept getting these little release valves? Like, oh, but look at little Samuel, isn't he cute? Right? We're not getting any of that here. None of that. You've entrusted, Eli was entrusted with the physical representation of the presence of Almighty God. His worthless sons took it to win a battle. His terror is for its safety. More than the people, even more than his son, he is sitting in terror of this news. He hears the lament of the city. When the city finds out what's happened, the cry goes up. Eli can hear them. He's terrified. He calls the messenger. The messenger comes. He knows it's bad. And the thing that caused him to tremble, the condition of the ark, verse 18, as soon as he, meaning the messenger, mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backwards from his seat by the side of the gates, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel for 40 years. And here ends the story, it seems like, here ends the story of the downfall of the house of Eli. Old, sad, fat, blind, afraid, and now dead. There's a little bit of disagreement among commentators as to what the shock was to his system. Is this the loss of all of his power or prestige? Is it the loss of most of the, probably at this point, his line? That literally there's no one left alive in his line? Although that's about to change. Is it the horror of God abandoning his temple while under Eli's watch? Maybe you've run a business, you've been in charge of something, and you've seen it nearly fade, nearly go away. Many ministries and businesses during COVID saw their dreams yanked out from under them, and the thought that it died under your watch, the terrifying thought, maybe that's what's going on here. The writer here has made a play on words, though, that's meant to teach us something. The word for glory and the word for heavy are similar in the Hebrew language. They're intentionally used here to assign judgment. Alistair Begg says it this way, the glory, the stolen glory of God has been discovered. It is wrapped around the waist of Eli. He has stolen the fat of the sacrifices and placed it on himself, and it kills him. This is a take on significance. It's a good first thought. This is a take on significance. Now, I'm going to use the word light here, but I mean it in the colloquial modern day term like something that has less calories. L-I-T-E, light. What in your world is heavy and what is light? That's part of what's being asked here. Are you heavy and God is light? Is the version of Christianity that you have, could it rightly be called Christianity light? Could it be called Jesus follower light? The other things are more heavy in my life. Other things have more significance. Other things get more glory than him. Maybe, maybe that's part of the issue here and part of what we're supposed to be learning. Again, this is a challenging passage to, to read and to study and to listen to. Here we go. Just when you thought it was bad, the consequences of Eli's sin continues. Verse 19, now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas. There's a good, great gig, huh? Being Phineas's wife. The wife of Phineas was pregnant and about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth for the pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said, do not be afraid for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. 
Something apparently goes wrong. Is it, is it her own heartbroken depression? Is it something's, but something's going wrong during the delivery and she realizes, they all realize she's about to die. And the, 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 the women who are there helping her give birth tell her, let your last thoughts be of good cheer. You have given birth to a son. This may be the last surviving member of Eli's house is this newborn son who's just been born. She did not pay answer or pay any attention, but she named the child Ichabod, saying the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. See, Ichabod is probably in the Hebrew a question. It's like Michael. The name Michael is a question. I've talked to you about that. Michael. Who is like God? It's my middle name, my dad's name, my son's name, Michael. Who is like God? It's a rhetorical question. Nobody, that's who. Nobody's like God. Well, this is another question probably. Where is the glory? Where is God's glory? It's gone. It may even be just a simple statement, no glory. Or most tragically, alas, the glory. It's gone. This is a tragic story. It may be that this is a tragic story of a godly woman who's been married to a terrible excuse for a husband who was grieved at the loss of her family and especially the loss of God's glory in Shiloh. Hers would be a fascinating story to know, but we don't know it, and it ends with the birth of her son, uh, Ichabod. Again, this birth is an obvious bookend. If you've been watching, um, you can see this. We start with the rise of Elkanah's family and Samuel. Remember that the story here is the, is the raising up of one family, the exaltation of this family, this humble family who has nothing to offer and God exalts them. And meanwhile, there's this family with all this power and all this significance who have been stealing the glory of God, and we see God's hand is heavy on them as he dethrones them from power and replaces them with someone who he finds uh, more appropriate. This is li- almost literally a book in, in this part of the story, in the rise and fall of these two families. You remember that the birth of Samuel, Samuel's name means God has heard. Shmuel, God has heard. And now we have Ichabod, God has gone. The glory of God is missing. We'll see, by the way, Ichabod again in about 10 chapters. Um, we'll get a little information about him. We'll, we'll look forward to that. Some Jewish archaeologists, by the way, think that here's what happens next, even though the Bible is silent about it, is that the Philistines, having defeated the Israelis, and they've all gone to their own homes to to run and hide to do the best they can, there's evidence that what happened is the Philistine army then marched all the way to Shiloh, slaughtered the people there, and burned everything they found. In fact, you can now go visit, and they actually have found archaeological evidence of a fire sweeping through there. There are pots that were found that were burned, and the contents were, were burned. And so it may be very likely this is what happened, that the, that the Philistines followed along. So you can imagine that here you have Eli, who's, he's just fallen down dead. Everyone is in panic. They know the Philistines are coming. They're wrapping up everything they can of the tabernacle. We're going to lose track of the tabernacle, by the way, at this point for a while. It's kind of going to turn up in a place called Nob in a few chapters, um, it seems like. But as far as its exact standard of where it goes and how it moves is going gonna, is gonna to be kind of hard to follow. The ark itself is going to be hard to follow during the next few, some of the next few chapters. But there's that much disarray in Israel, is that the tabernacle and the ark itself are, having, are, are kind of vanishing as they move around. It's pretty tough. Um, uh, okay, so 
Some think they're frantically trying to take the, take the mobile aspects of the tabernacle apart. For now, though, we cut to the ark. Because the ark is about to get a tour of the cities of Philistia. So charting in chapter 5. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Remember, there's five main cities in, in Philistia on the coast there of Israel. And one of them is called Ashdod. So here we have Ashdod. So the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it to the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. How about that? Now, again, we've got to keep something in mind that the, the way of thinking in this part of the world at this time is that everybody has their own gods. Every culture has their own gods. Dagon was a Mesopotamian god. I'm going to teach a little bit more about him in a second. Um, he, was, he was a god who was common in that region. And so they had the Philistines apparently had a temple to him, a house to him in Ashdod. <laughs> so <laughs> kind of like, remember when we did Daniel, when we talked about Daniel, we talked about how in the evangelical world when we're raised in Sunday school, sometimes we get the impression like when it says that, that, that like Nebuchadnezzar worshipped God or honored God in some way, we think, oh, he probably joined Sunday school and he put, asked Jesus into his heart, right? That's probably what happened is that he filled out the card and everything. And that's, that's wrong. So, so Nebuchadnezzar would have had a temple of his main gods. And when they conquered somebody, they would get their gods and bring them as well. And so they would put that up. Well, Defeating the Hebrew God, one of the weird things was he had no idol. He had no idol to move around. And so what we did to discuss this, if you remember we were going through Daniels, we put up a plaque. And this was the plaque we imagined Nebuchadnezzar putting up somewhere in his temple, in, his, uh, in, in the, the, the temple to all the polytheistic gods who he worshipped. And there would have been some plaque saying like the God of the Jews, who calls himself the Most High God. And so, and so he would have put that up. We don't know much about this God. Apparently he's not great at war. Um, apparently he's not that great at armies. That's how Nebuchadnezzar would have interpreted all of this stuff. But we still need to acknowledge there is such a God, so we put him up. Well, then what happens as we go through the book of Daniel is that there's new insights that Nebuchadnezzar discovers something about this God. And it's, it's, he's like, discovers, oh, he's a revealer of mysteries. So you can imagine that he would have had someone real quickly go make a, make a little addition to the plaque and hang it on the plaque. Ah, this God of Israel, he's a revealer of mysteries. That way when we're looking for someone to reveal mysteries, you go to his followers. You go to this God. So when you have a dream, for example, and you don't know what the dream means, you go find one of his people and you go, hey, your God reveals mysteries. Can you help us out here? Which is exactly what we see happen. Or, or he is a man who, who is a God who can rescue his servants. Like with the three Hebrew men who don't burn alive in the fire. And so Nebuchadnezzar goes, hey, somebody go attach something to the, like, that was pretty cool. I, I've not seen that before. He can, he can rescue like no other. So it makes sense that later when Darius is throwing Daniel in the lion's den, he would go say, let's see, Daniel worships the Yahweh God, the God most high. Uh, man, what hope do we have? Oh, you know what? He rescues his servants. Maybe Daniel will be okay in the lion's den if he really does. And that's why Darius comes the next morning. Did your God in fact rescue you? And he did. And of course, Nebuchadnezzar learns very hard way that he's a humbler of people, that God can humble like nobody else. That's not a bad theology of God, the revealer of mysteries, the rescuer of his people, and the humbler of the proud. 
as we're discovering here. No one can humble like Yahweh can. And that's what we're seeing happen. If you, you, you've got to imagine now you have God going toe-to-toe with Dagon. That just like God did with the gods of Egypt, that when God, remember the Philistines referenced it in the last chapter, that, that listen, we don't want to face this God. We saw what he did to Egyptians. We've heard about this. That God went systematically through the, the, uh, uh, all the different gods of Egypt, the pantheon of Egypt, and just kind of thumped them in the head one after the other. If, if, if the, the, the plagues of Egypt have ever made sense to you, that's why. You don't know that's what's going on. There's a battle going on behind the scenes. And the people are caught up in it. But God is declaring his authority over each of the gods of Egypt. Have you ever thought it was weird that the second to last plague was darkness? Like, man, I'll take darkness over boils any day, right? Like, yeah, sure, darkness, why not? Just take a nap. That's not that big a threat, is it? Well, it is if your main god is Ra, the god of the sun. And you worship Ra, and you say, Ra, I need you to go up against this Yahweh God for us, because he's kind of kicking our tails. Would you, would you please go to war with him? And the next morning you wake up, and there's no sun. It's just gone. And it's because Yahweh turned to Ra and said, hey, you know how I let you take the sun every morning? Yeah, not today. Your people who worship you get no sun today. And Ross says, I'd, I'd like to, uh, you know, uh, uh, go against that if I could. I'd like to make an argument. Nope, not interested. Your people get no sun today. How terrifying it would be for us to wake up and have the sun be blotted out. But if your main hope is raw, that's bad news. You know bad things are coming. Well, that's what's going on here. Now, as a Bible nerd, this passage, by the way, until this week has not made sense to me. Let me tell you why. We're about to see a plague made up of mice or rats and tumors. Why? I've never understood that. I'm going to offer my theory before we're done. But let me tell you a little about Dagon. This helped me. One, Dagon is not a fish god. Now you go, like, I, like that was what I thought already. Well, I taught that when we taught Samson. That Dagon was a fish god. In fact, if you go online, most commentaries and most uh, Christian sites will reference Dagon as a fish god. We now know and I mean fairly recently, no, that's a mistake. It came from the fact that the Hebrew word dag means fish. But this is not a Hebrew god. This is the god of the Mesopotamians. Dagon does not mean fish to them. And recent discoveries have turned up that Dagon is actually a prosperity god. But if you search, like if you were to search right now Dagon online, you're going to get pictures like this. This is a picture of a Mesopotamian fish god. It's just not Dagon. But no one seems to know that. And so I, I was digging this week, and I was going to show you just like I did under Samson. In fact, I went to my Samson notes and was just going to teach those again. Thought, I'll do a little more research and discovered they're all wrong. Um, so what I told you about Samson, which none of you remember anyway. But if you did, wipe it out of your head. Like, just <laughs> let that go. It was wrong. And so it turns out Dagon is not a fish god. Dagon is the god of prosperity. That's a little scary when you think about the prosperity gospel, that there is a God who was worshipped in the name of prosperity, that maybe the prosperity gospel teachers are teaching a gospel of a different God. That's one. Two, when you're in the Middle East at this time, there's two signs of prosperity. We've already seen them in Samuel. If you are prosperous, you have enough what? Food and children. Food and children. 
If you're wealthy, if you're prosperous, you have food and you have children. Well, it turns out that makes sense. Dagon is the prosperity god of grain and fertility. There you go. That makes totally good sense. So if you think this, this event that just happened in the temple of Dagon is meant to be the humiliation of a god and his priests, you're right. It's a horrible PR moment. You can imagine come, the priests come in one morning, they've, got, they've captured the ark, they're all proud, we've got it in Ashdod, we're going to put it in our temple to Dagon, this is going to be awesome, and next morning they come walking in, and a strange coincidence has happened, their Dagon idol has fallen over, and it just happens to look like it's worshiping the ark. That's funny. Wow, that's kind of weird. So they get the idol, and they stand it back up, and they reseal it, which has always struck me as ironic. By the way, I've always thought the whole idolatry thing was a little weird. Like, it's a God, let it stand itself up. Like, no one catches it ironic, like, hey, we need to prop this thing back up. Like, yeah, that's not subtle. Yeah, go prop your God up, because he needs your help putting it. Anyway, so, so they do that, but it's just one of those amazing, like it happens. You know, amazing, weird things happen in life. So they, they, they pray to Dagon that day, and things start going bad for them. We'll get there in a second. And the next day they wake up to find Dagon not just fallen down again, but just to make sure no one accidentally thinks it was, a, it was a, a random chance again, the head and the hands are removed, and they're sitting on the threshold of the door. I believe this is meant to create the impression that Dagon was trying to get out. Dagon was trying to escape the Ark of the Covenant in his own temple. And he made it all the way to the threshold before the, or the power of God dragged his body back, leaving his hands and his head sitting on the threshold, probably screaming the whole time, nope, you're going to worship the Ark. You're going to worship the God of the Ark because I am Yahweh and you're just Dagon. It's a powerful picture of God's, of God's authority over the gods of the world. It shows us, did God fail to protect his people, his tabernacle, or his ark because of the weakness of his power? No. That's not what happened. He had a lesson to teach his people. Verse 6. The, land, the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. We'll see that the suffering includes a plague of, of an infestation of rats and of whatever these are, tumors. The rats are easy to understand. Rats and mice are easy to understand if you're trying to show your authority over a grain god. Bringing an infestation of mice will do a good job of damaging everything this god represents. His job is to provide us with grain, and all of our grain is going away to a bunch of little furry gray things that are taking them from us. That makes sense. But what about the tumors? I have a theory. Verse 7, when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of God is Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. How's this for political passing of the buck? Isn't it great to know that pagan politicians haven't changed in 3,500 years? It's like, no, no, it's not our problem anymore. Somebody else's problem now. I actually think this is probably the way it went down. I don't know this, but this is what I think. I think Gath, I think they're the tough ones. That's where Goliath is from, right? Make imagine Goliath standing behind his, his Philistine lord in this conference, this big hulking giant of a man, and going like, you bunch of pansies, we'll take it. We're not afraid of the God of Israel. We took him out before. We stood up against him before. You know, we'll, we're going to do this. A bunch of superstitious cowards. We'll just take it. So it goes to Gath. 
And that you can imagine that's how this went. I don't know that that's how it went. That's just what I think. Remember that whole passage from last chapter? Are we not men? We'll take it. We're not afraid. We're not scared. So the men of Philistia conquered the Hebrews and their God through their own display of power. Remember that the men of Philistia did not call on Dagon in the battle. What they called on was themselves. Are we not men? Verse 9. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so the tumors broke out on them. Oops. That did not go the way Gath had thought. Gath is conquered immediately by the God of the box. He afflicted it. By the way, this is the picture. You hear this phrase, God's hand is heavy on them? What a fascinating terminology. Here's what I think you should imagine. His hand, he's putting pressure on them. And he keeps increasing the pressure. And he's waiting for them to break. The image that came to my mind was sometimes you'll see this in a movie or something like that where it's like the bargain has to be struck and the guys come up and they they each shake hands. And you can imagine God saying, I want my box back. And the people of Felicity going like, well, what are you going to give us for it? And God starts squeezing. I want my box back. (laughs) Well, what are you going to, I want my box back. You hear the sounds of their bones cracking in their hands as he keeps squeezing. His hand is heavy upon them. They realize, we're going to lose this. This is not going to come out in our favor. Even Gath recognizes it. There's a great, a very great panic falling upon the men of Philistia. In particular, by the way, you notice that? The men, young and old. That's where the tumors are showing up, is on the men. So what do they do? What does Gath do? They send the ark of God to Ekron. <laughs> they don't even ask. There's no Ekron doesn't get a vote. It just turns up. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they've brought this ark to us, the God of Israel, to kill us and our people. Ekron doesn't get to volunteer for this. It just gets sense to them, but they aren't having it. They're angry at the other Philistines. The people of Gath are trying to kill us. This is a huge inner city crisis building. There's a civil war warming up here. These are warlike people. They think they just sent a bomb to their city. The ark has brought destruction everywhere it goes, calamity everywhere it goes. The day of the Lord has come to Ashdod. And the day of the Lord has come to Gath. And the day of the Lord has come to Ekron. Before they can fully fall apart, panic is setting in. People are dying. So the lords of the Philistines gathered together again in verse 11. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy on them. The pressure was increasing and increasing. Verse 12 And the men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. The Philistines, their outcry is so loud you can hear them in heaven. They are wailing and weeping and under the the cracking pressure of God's hand of judgment on them, and they can't stand it anymore. Now I'm just curious, let's talk about these tumors for a second. Um, I've been curious about this, and I've wanted to unpack it, and so we're going to talk about it because I have a microphone. Are there any King James Version users out there? Any, any KJVs? Okay. In the King James Version, the King James in that time translated this word, tumor, emerod. It's where we get the word hemorrhoid. And so you've probably actually heard preachers say that the people of Philistia were struck with hemorrhoids. 
Maybe. I mean, we, don't, we really don't know. It's supposition. The idea of them creating gold models of that later certainly creates some comedy um, for us to try to figure that out. But here's what we do know. The Hebrew here just means swelling or, or a, a something like that. It actually is the word ophel. It can mean a hill or a mountain. It just means a swelling or a tumor or a, something rising up on the skin that doesn't belong there, something that is not supposed to be there. Um, it could be an infection, very easily could be an infection that, that is spreading and growing. Um, this, is, this is most likely. By the way, not accidentally, the word ophel, meaning hill or swelling, which is translated tumor, is very similar to the, its own root word, aphal, which means proud. So this is literally an attack on the pride. It is a swelling on the pride of the men of Philistia. You can probably already guess what I think is going on. What is happening to the men of Philistia? Tumors are growing on their bodies, but the bodies of the men only. One meant to humble them and defeat their god, Dagon. The rats are the obvious defeater of Dagon as a god of wealth and, and grain. But what about him as a fertility god? If you were Yahweh and you wanted to strike panic into the men of Philistia, are we not men to defeat them at their own game? What would you do? Where would you put the tumors to humble them? Consider this is the same God who when he wants to humble his people to remind them that they are his people, he commands them to circumcision. When we talk about circumcision and you say, why would God who wanted to remind a group of people, you're mine, you're not your own God, you're mine. Why would you do that? No one ever has to ask. We know why he would do that. That would remind you all the time that this is the stance. I'm in charge around here. God is going to drive a warlike group of men, proud men, masculine men, men proud of their masculinity and their power and war to such a point that they cry out, to heaven. I think you can probably guess where I think God is striking them with the tumors. Their grain is gone. Their fertility, gone. Their prosperity, gone. Dagon, defeated. Disease and panic and plague and rats, and Dagon is powerless to do anything about it. And the men of Philistia, are we not men? Are powerless to do anything about it. He strikes them where the most potent to prove how impotent they are. And here we learn the Philistines are about to run a scientific experiment in the next chapter, just to make sure it really is God who's striking them. Fascinating to see. Um, what can we possibly learn from these passages? The humbling of Eli. Listen to this pattern. I don't think it's subtle. We've seen the humbling of Eli. The humbling of the Hebrew people. The humbling of a pagan god and the humbling of their warlike men. What possible lesson should we be getting from this? Maybe we should ask ourselves, where am I placing my pride? What is my pride in? And am I willing to have it taken from me? Because that may be what God's going to do. It's a great question for all of us. As you're considering it, I want you to go ahead and stand. Let's stand. And I want us to be in consideration of this as we're thinking about this. Is, what is it that we say, this is where I place my pride? This right here. 
And understand that God's promise to us in His love is to humble us in that place. Is there anything we've not turned over to Him? Is there anything that we think He's still impressed by us on? What are these things? He doesn't need anything from us. He's not impressed by us. Where is our pride? How should we demand to be treated? What about our pride in in what we consider to be our rights or our gifts or our skills or our wealth? Whatever it is that we place our pride in, understand God's promise to his people is to humble us in that. And if we will humble ourselves before him and say, this thing that I find pride in God, help me remember that it's yours, not mine. It's yours. You could take it from me in a moment. There's nothing so personal, nothing so private, nothing so connected to my identity that you couldn't strip it away in an instant if you wanted to in order to humble me. Which if he loves us, he will do. I want to close our time today. In a minute we're going to sing, and I'd love for you to respond as the Spirit leads. Wherever you are, that you're looking at your life. God, this is yours, not mine. Take it, take it. I don't want to be caught with it. With my pride still in it. Whatever those things are that we would look to Him in His love and in His grace as we saw in James. His desire to humble the proud is an act of grace. So that's our prayer for Him, that He would do that in our lives. If you need to come up here and pray, we'd love for you to do that. Pray where you are. Ask someone around you. Pray with someone over in the corner. We would love to pray with you. If you know you need to put your faith in Jesus Christ, that your pride has been in your own, uh, to trust yourself for some kind of salvation or right living or whatever it happens to be, and you realize, yeah, I'm defeated there, and you want to put your faith in Jesus Christ instead, we'd love to pray with you. We'd love for that today to be the day of salvation. And if you've recognized that you need a community, you need a Christian family to be a part of, and you've um, you've talked to Lance and the Welcome Home team, and you're ready to come and join our dysfunctional family, Uh, We'd love for you to do that as well. We've been properly humbled too. So uh, whatever it is the Lord has for you. Let me read from Luke chapter 18. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The very words of God.